Aaron. Well, medieval Aaron, have you heard of the hot new invention? What's that? University. No, what's that? I don't know, but even better, they've invented a second thing, which is not going to university. Oh, that's what I'm doing now. Wow, but only for a year, and then you have to go to university. What's that called? Otherwise, some might call it. Hey guys, what's up? Um, I'm new actually here in medieval Ipswich. Are you guys like, you know... Like, farmer, peasant types, serfs. We're local youths. You guys, like, dirt you into dirt? Yeah, we are the salt of the earth. We've been labouring hard, and now we're enjoying a lovely pint (laughs) of the warmest beer possible. That's funny, because actually, I'm the complete opposite. I come from a background of extreme privilege, and I've come here to Ipswich on my gap Wow, I'm really endeared to your to you already from the way you described yourself. <laughs> we should be friends. Wow. I don't know. Say, would you like an ale from the buxom wench over there? Um, I don't know. I'm really more interested in learning about like how I can live like you guys, you know? Like I'm excited and willing to provide an authentic version of my experience of life. <laughs> <laughs> And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I'm Olivia, this is Aaron, and this week we are joined by a special guest for the first time, our first ever guest. Very exciting, and that is Joe Mason. Oh, hello, I'm Joe Mason. I work as an archaeologist, and I have a vague knowledge of history, so I've got a lot to contribute to this podcast. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah. It's good, yeah, it's good to have you. Thanks for coming on, Joe. And as you might have picked up from our cold open, although it's a bit dubious. Um... <laughs> <laughs> our incredibly well-structured, very tightly written, type 5 cold open. Um, yeah, we are talking about medieval students and medieval student life on this episode. That's right. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you either are a student, have students, or were a student. So I think this is going to speak to you on a really profound level. Part of my area of expertise is for my eternal shame, I was at one point a student. Boo! <laughs> boo the man! <laughs> yep, in fact, all three of us went to the same university, although I didn't know you guys at uni, but, you Glasgow know. school, uni, your loss. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Glasgow. school! A venerable institution. A medieval university, as it happens. Incredibly medieval. As they all, well, barely medieval. They get it, they sneak under the fucking, the limbo bar by like five years. <laughs> but on the open day, they'll take you to all the oldest buildings in the place. Which are not medieval because they were, all, the entire university used to be on the other side of town and then they disassembled it and moved it. And then they put you in like a big cardboard box for the rest of your lectures. <laughs> And there's asbestos there. Yay! Yay. Delicious asbestos. (laughs) My lungs feel amazing. So, um, before we can talk about university students, though, I think we need to go back and look at how the whole institution of universities came about in the Middle Ages, because it's not been around forever. No, I mean, so so universities, as we kind of know them today, don't get started at the start of the Middle Ages. It's actually quite a late innovation. You don't see universities really start to take their current form until 
I don't know what you say, 13th century? 12th or 13th century. Yeah, until then, basically what you did, if you were a sort of strapping young lad, or ladess, and you wanted to learn more about uh, law, or Jesus, or other stuff, mostly those first two, um, you would basically find a scholar and say, I will pay you to tell me about law and or Jesus. Roam the hills far and wide. Literally. Shouting from the hilltops. <laughs> I mean, Teach me. I mean, that was basic. That is basically what it was, because these were itinerant scholars who would pitch up to a town and just go, well, I'm here, I'm doing a school, anybody want to come learn from me? And one of, the, one of those scholars was a character that long-time listeners of the show will remember from our Wife Guys episode. One of the greatest uh, simps of all time, the James Dean Nietzsche uh, hybrid monstrosity that was Peter Abelard. So he met his future wife, Eloise, when she rocked up to Paris and wanted to get taught by him. And then they fell in love, some other stuff happened, got his dick cut off. It's a very sad story. Yeah. You can listen You can listen to it uh, wherever good podcasts are sold. The beginnings, the early beginnings of the problematic student lecture of relationships. <laughs> <laughs> Been there from the start. <laughs> Yep, more or less. Um, but not all scholars were completely independent. Not all study was conducted in this purely independent way. There were also cathedral schools where they'd teach you all the skills you need to become a monk, which was mostly theology and reading and writing. That's about it, to be honest. Growing <laughs> potatoes. Brewing. <laughs> yeah. frying, frying things. <laughs> Sorry, just to, just to circle back on the potato thing, because I have clearly not learned my lesson. Uh, don't comment about potatoes. I know they didn't have them. <laughs> yeah. The pre-university days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was hard scrabble. It was like searching for the Holy Grail. You'd never find a scholar when you needed it, and then three would come along all at once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like trying to catch a tube. <laughs> so yeah, over time, um, I think it's right to say, this became more of a sort of formalized and more of a well-known structure of learning. So there were towns and scholars that were known for specific areas of study and students began to band together and say okay well I'm paying this guy and you are paying this guy so we could pay him together and maybe he could teach a whole class and in fact in certain towns you would have whole areas of the city that were dedicated to scholars sort of just hanging out in the open so for instance in Paris um, the Latin Quarter so-called because you would have students and teachers coming from all over the world, and the only language they shared was Latin. So they'd all be speaking to each other in Latin. So obviously, as things develop, people might recognize the need for a more formal organization. Yeah, exactly. So there were quite a few disadvantages to being a student um, in the Middle Ages. It wasn't actually all fun and games and, you know, spending money and, you know, being frivolous. So... For instance, being a foreigner in the Middle Ages, moving from your city to another city, not actually sort of a great setup for you as, as the student, because most medieval cities afforded very, very few privileges to people who were foreigners. Um, and so essentially, like, the law was not on your side in any legal disputes. You could be kicked out, banished from the city with very little sort of legal recourse. People could kind of just, like, abuse you and kick you and punch you and just mistreat you generally. They do insulting versions of your accent. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, exactly. My name is Joe Mason. That's what you sound like. <laughs> <laughs> 
they'd patronise you, they'd be like, do you have an underground where you're from? <laughs> so, no, there isn't. It's the medieval period. <laughs> We've got a tram. Yeah. <laughs> which, is what I, which is what I call a very large wagon. <laughs> There's the open pit quarry that we throw prisoners down. <laughs> so yeah, and there were other sort of, um, you know, frictions associated with the whole student structure as well. For instance, just trying to kind of get the whole thing organized is quite, quite a burden, isn't it? To well, housing students. was, like, the housing situation was awful because obviously as soon as you, um, as soon as a place becomes known as a center of learning, everybody's coming from all over Europe to, to study there, it has a incredibly inflationary effect on the housing market in that town so everybody's paying ridiculous amounts of rent this is completely unlike anything that happens today obviously. of course yeah a frustrating experience for everyone involved but thankfully we, we moved past it as a society <laughs> but it's i think it's important to note that like despite these sort of complicating factors there was a general tendency um, over the course of the Middle Ages, there was a general increase in like this demand for organized learning. Mm. And that comes down to quite a few factors, not all of which we can go through, but there was sort of an increasing need for a clerical class, you might call it. So even though a lot of early centers of learning were cathedral schools and associated with the church, there was also an increasing need for things like doctors and lawyers and people who maybe were familiar with both the religious and the secular legal systems, especially because, as we've mentioned on the pod before, a big part of the cultural trend in the Middle Ages was like this, you know, ongoing battle for power between the church and the state. And on both sides of that battle, both institutions were becoming more bureaucratic. So especially from the sort of, from the, from the high Middle Ages onwards, you know, with the with the sort of reforms that you see in the Carolingian Empire that then sort of spread out across Europe, there are in, there the, the the medieval state is becoming more bureaucratic, and alongside that, the medieval church is also becoming more bureaucratic, creating all these sort of layers of canon courts and so on. We talked about this in the divorce episode. Go listen to that. <laughs> we don't have time to get into it. <laughs> the important thing being that if you're establishing a lot of rules, you need someone who can both read and write them down. <laughs> Basically. So we've got the demand for studies and for institutional learning. How do you formalize that and make it into an institution? You start a university. Which is a pretty hard thing to do when universities don't exist yet. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe we should explain how the first universities emerge. Yeah, I think first universities, plural, is mm -hmm. kind of an important point because it's very hard to look at all of the universities and say, this one's the oldest, this one's been around the longest because most of them did get their start in this really informal, unstructured way. So mm -hmm. we have like attestations to these places, you know, towns existing as centers of learning but we don't have a record of someone saying, well, we decided to do some studies in Paris. Yeah. And therefore Paris must be the oldest one. Well, then I think it's important to lay down some basic criteria for what a university is. So I think the, the in general, I think that the, the, the basic criteria that we should use when trying to figure out when universities emerge and, and, and how is to just say a university is, it's a permanent institution that's tied to a specific place so it's not just like a temporary sort of you know a, a temporary school that's set up by a traveling scholar it awards formal degrees as universities do now 
and uh, it's also organized in a guild format, so people are members of the university. Yeah, yeah, which is, it's funny that you should touch upon the concept of a guild, because the Latin word universitas actually essentially just means like guild or association. So the first universities were known as like universitas scholastica or something, I forget exactly what the Latin is. Yeah, exactly. Like the book fair that they send you to when you're a little American kid and you have a a great a great desire for an eraser that's like a foot long and is bendy. I want a goddamn magic school bus book and I want it now. Exactly. Is this, uh, this is anything, by the way, to you? Uh, I they do have Scholastica in England. Really, it's another American import. I think a lot of people resent it <laughs> for a variety of reasons. Yeah, that's fair. So yeah, so the earliest universities, I would say, pretty clearly are Bologna and Paris, mm-hmm. and these universities essentially came about as a sort of you know confluence of all these factors. So lots of scholars, lots of students. Um, and sort of the need for various protections and various rights for the students. Yeah, because, I mean, especially Bologna, if we look at the history of the University of Bologna, is a very organic organization that emerges very sort of organically as a sort of student-led institution. So to, to take a step back and explain why Bologna is the ground zero for all of this, you kind of have to understand a little bit about, you know, what's happening in Italy in the 12th century, which is, as we've touched on in the previous episode, uh, is chaos. (laughs) (laughs) It's this mosaic of, like, tiny little city-states that are constantly feuding with each other and the Pope and the Emperor, and that, and are internally incredibly chaotic as well. So, you know, politically, there's constant sort of shifting between the different factions, and so the cities will change hands constantly, Bologna changes hands between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines four times in ten years over the course of, like, the late, uh, the late 12th century, which is, like, a level of turnover that you normally only see in modern Italian politics. (laughs) (laughs) And presumably, if all you want to do is read a book, this could be quite disruptive. It's very disruptive. And the structure of having different schools, um sort of being maintained by different scholars who are in competition with one another only heightens that chaos. So you have brilliant stories from the time of, um, of, of lecturers bribing their students to like skip classes from, from other lecturers. There's an amazing story of a guy who announces to his students, next week I shall fly as a way to just get some attention. <laughs> so maybe able to show up to his lectures and to be fair, I mean, having seen the attendance at a lot of first-year university lectures, that kind of technique is probably necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Can it be historically attested to that he flew, then? I don't even know if it's historically attested to that he tried. (laughs) (laughs) Well, presumably that only worked for one week. The week after that, I can't imagine, you know. (laughs) It's a real issue of long-term planning. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, fool me once and all that. So you had so this is not a great setup for students because you're if you're going to the other side of the continent to learn and paying exorbitant amounts of amounts of money to live in an incredibly expensive area, you probably want to get a good <laughs> education. It would be frustrating to be walking down the street and be constantly accosted by itinerant lecturers <laughs> <laughs> looking for students. <laughs> hey you, want to learn about the law? <laughs> <laughs> but 
the same time, I think it's worth saying like Bologna is a really important place for these studies to be taking place because when you said feuds between city states and the empire, mm. which empire are we talking about here? Well, speci- I mean, usually talking about the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, so we've got Rome on one side of Bologna, which is the seat of the papacy and the church, and then on the other side we've got Aachen, which is a very kind of insignificant city now. I don't think anyone who's not from there could like tell you anything about Aachen, but believe it or not, like at the time, this was the capital of the Holy Roman Empire. Beautiful hot springs. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't know. Yeah, good, good for swimming, you know. <laughs> that must be why they chose it as the capital. Um, but yeah, and so Bologna is right between them, and it's actually on the road um, between Rome and Aachen. I actually Google mapped how to drive from Rome to Aachen, and it said to go through Bologna. So, <laughs> you know, an important sort of historically attested sort of route. Middle point. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. So that's why when you have these like conflicts between the emperor and or you know the empire in general and the church, um, Bologna is makes sense as a place for people with legal knowledge to congregate. So eventually, the Universitas of Bologna gets founded as essentially a students' association. Uh, it's like a, essentially like a trade union for students, where they were able to impose their will on lecturers. And threatened to withhold their tuition fees if their lecturers didn't teach them about specific things, didn't develop a specific curriculum, and didn't uh, sort of accede to their demands. They would be boycotted, and they would be boycotted by all the students in the city. So, Aaron, you're talking about some kind of students' union? (laughs) (laughs) Later. (laughs) And because that's that's a very advantageous position to be in if you're a student which made Bologna an even more attractive place to study. It's like, you can tell these like old farts what to do. This is amazing. I don't have to run around Paris trying to find them. Presumably all the lecturers in Paris were just complaining that students didn't want to work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so at, the, at, at a similar time, around a similar time, sort of similar forces are causing the first university in Paris to develop, known... I believe still to this day, as the University of Paris. Oui, la Sorbonne. Efficient naming. <laughs> and not only are these student unions kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, I almost said congealing, but that's not true. Coagulating. Like, coagulating, thank you. And that's what blood does. Yeah. But... <laughs> um, but Bobbing it... together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like gelling. Um, but, yeah. At the same time, sort of the concept of a university as a group of people who are separate from the rest of society is also developing because, you know, while these universities are growing, there's kind of pretty consistently tension between the people that live in these towns and the students. And the students don't want to be mistreated and the people that live in the towns feel this immense disconnect with this really large population of foreigners, often most of whom might not speak the same language as the other people in the town. So there's a pretty big divide between them, and that's also part of what spurs the need for a university as a place that's granted sort of separate privilege. Um, Not that the invention of universities uh, solved that problem, (laughs) because it's very much still a thing now. In the English-speaking world, we call it town versus gown. (laughs) It did let them come up with a cool name, though. Yeah. (laughs) 
But yeah, because you have, as you say, unstable political situations and you have this rather insular community. And so it's around the same time that we see the first charters being granted to universities, giving them permission to exist as separate entities that actually aren't governed by the politics and the law of wherever they live. Um, they're able to basically enforce their own system of crime and discipline. Uh, well, not system of crime. I mean, some of them probably were <laughs> doing, well, that's, doing that's crimes. System of crime. We'll, we'll get, get into, into that. that. System yeah. of crime. <laughs> but yeah, because the the um, you know both the church and the sort of secular government are really invested in having this like clerical class of people, the Pope therefore says to some of the first universities. I'll grant you guys permission, basically, to be treated legally as uh, as clergy mm. and to basically have all of the legal rights and permissions as members of the church. Yeah, which is a very important thing because, as we explored in the in our episode about divorce, if you could sort of prove a connection to the church, you could, you know, petition to be tried for any basically any crime <laughs> under canon law rather than royal justice and canon law. As we explored that, sorry, and canon law is a lot more lenient than the royal justice. It basically never uses um, the death penalty, for example, and it was basically just like a slap on the wrist and you go, oh, go apologize at mass yeah. <laughs> for killing this dude. You might expect these courts to be more sympathetic. Yeah, I, at the bare minimum, because it's your, you and your mates. Yeah, yeah. You can come from a similar social class. Yeah, exactly. It's, I should stress though that this was. Very. This was not something that was imposed on cities by the papacy. This was a like giving students these privileges was something that cities very sort of proactively participated in because it was um, it was good to have a university in your town. It was good for money because it brought more people in to spend more money, and also it was good for prestige. So you were a suddenly you were on the map. Which is, by the way, I suspect one of the reasons why a lot of the places that end up founding the most universities are the more sort of peripheral countries in Europe. Like, you don't see a whole lot of universities being fun founded in the Middle Ages in places like the Holy Roman Empire or, um, or England or even in France. I mean, in 1500, I was looking at a list of universities in Europe in the, for in the 15th century because I'm really cool. And fascinatingly, in 1500... Scotland has more universities than England, even though England has like five times the population and is much richer. Um, we're fucking crushing them, as we are to this day. <laughs> this is <laughs> educationally one of the sort of explanations that I read for why places in the Holy Roman Empire didn't develop universities as quickly was because of like the greater degree of wealth and the aristocracy basically not needing university education and not needing, mm. you know to be part of these student unions because they they could just, you know, pay for someone to come and teach them and their kids and they weren't necessarily pursuing careers in law or in theology. Whereas if you're a relatively, like, I'm sorry, I'm going to be mean for a second, peripheral place like Aberdeen, <laughs> uh, it's actually very helpful to have an institution in your city that you can sort of point to and be like, we're a center of learning. Yeah. Which is why Aberdeen gets a university before London does, which is... <laughs> Hysterical. <laughs> <laughs> 
So yeah, I mean, it's it's the year 1200, maybe you're a student in Paris or Bologna, and things are pretty good, you go to lectures, you're required to wear a gown because that's how people know that you're a student and that you're not just a normal townsperson. Um, but yeah, you have this sort of collective bargaining power where you and your fellow students can sort of threaten to withdraw your, you know, presence from the town and sort of threaten, you know, economic hardship or harm upon them if the town isn't treating you well, isn't doing, you know, their due diligence to make sure you guys are taken care of. And yeah, you probably find some lodgings, you find a flat to stay in or a room in town, so there's no student accommodations yet in the beginning. And yeah, you're basically free to do whatever you like. It sounds like they successfully established themselves as a distinct social class from the rest of the city with uh, individual privileges and even their own dress to distinguish themselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's why we have the academic gowns that you graduate in today. It used to be you had to wear that every day as a student. Not just because they look cool. Yeah. And now you wear one of those around campus and everyone calls you a wank. <laughs> <laughs> in Portugal, I think. Really? Yeah, they, they wear them, like, daily. That's cool. It must get really hot. Everyone says it just looks like Harry Potter. Oh, I bet. Well, say that about Glasgow Uni, but... Well, yeah, so then, as a as a student, as well, because you're maybe from, you know, if, you, if you're living in Italy, say in Bologna, maybe you're French or you're German, so you can go to your classes, they'll all be taught in Latin, and you're getting taught things like grammar and logic and rhetoric and music and you know these things that are seen as like the the basic skills that you need and most people don't know if you guys were aware of this were not working towards a degree no they were just hanging schools. out you were just going to study and maybe you take some exams you got to pay your tuition fees um, and pay fees to take exams and actually getting a degree was not something that most students were working towards. So a degree was basically just a certificate that said that you were qualified to teach this subject. So getting a master's degree in theology, now you can teach theology. But unless you want to become a teacher, there's, you know, no point. The degree being of secondary importance sounds like my university. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think we've, as modern universities have preserved the degree to teacher pipeline you know like if you're studying theology and people are like what are you going to do with your degree just teach theology oh, it's two options it's either that or become the pope yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've established what a university is and where a university comes from so let's finally get to the actual topic of this episode which is students student life student experiences Student things. So let's start with the most basic question of all. Who are these students? Uh, well, Oxford's Dictionary. <laughs> An individual studying at a university who would be intent of acquiring a degree. Thanks, John. I'm so glad we invited you on the show. You had so much to add. <laughs> That's mean. <laughs> we talk about the real thing students did all the time, then. Because I'm going to do it at you. Murder. <laughs> this is not admissible <laughs> in court. Yeah, joke, joke, parody. <laughs> I think if you say that, like that makes it okay, right? I mean, that's how canon law works. <laughs> well, I was reading. Sorry, this is a bit off topic, but I was reading about canon law and the whole idea that if you're a clergyman, you can be tried in a separate court, and about how the 
test for whether you were a clergy person over the course of the Middle Ages began. It used to be like you'd actually have to go and like explain yourself, but then they just changed it to a literacy test. And more specifically, they would always use the same psalm. So if you could read this psalm from the Bible, which was, I think, Psalm 51, which starts with like, you know, oh, forgive me God or something, you know, asking God for mercy, then like you could basically just be tried as a clergy. So it was anyone that was literate, except then people like kind of clocked that you didn't actually have to read it. You could just memorize it and look at the Bible and then, you know, just say it out loud. So basically anyone could get this like clergy privilege. So what they started doing, I was reading about this guy who's one of Shakespeare's contemporaries, um, was he killed a guy in a duel, which was illegal. No. Actually. It's messed up, man. <laughs> and like, this was something they did quite frequently. So then he pled like, cler it's called like benefit of the clergy. And so they gave it to him and then they branded his thumb to show that he'd already claimed it once and couldn't claim it again. So oh, like, like a voucher. You could yes, <laughs> yes. Benefit of the clergy was like a one-time voucher. Anyone could it was literally like a get out of jail free card that you could use <laughs> once in your life. I imagine you sort of met lawyers that were advertising on park benches <laughs> and you'd ring them up on your medieval telephone and they'd tell you, you just gotta know this one thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, literally, and the the verse became in the Bible became known as the neck verse, because it would save your neck if you could oh. recite it. Um yeah, but sometimes if the, they thought you were really guilty, they would make you say a different psalm, and then you were kind of like up Fucked. the creek without a paddle if yeah. you were actually illiterate. Oh, they'd really catch you out. Mm -hmm. You're like, fuck, I wish I'd learned to read. <laughs> I wish I'd learned a second psalm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would be really scary if you're being led to court, and you're like, I've murdered a man in a duel. But it's fine. <laughs> it was fine. You know, he had it coming. Yeah. We all think dueling's pretty cool. How else are we supposed to solve arguments? Mm -hmm. Uh-huh. They, they're like, you got to read this psalm, you open the book, you do the one you've memorized, and they say, that's not it. <laughs> it's like it's like you open the, uh, you, op you, op you go to the exam hall, you open the exam book, and it's the one fucking question you haven't revised for. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do final exam, so long as they only talk about the Saxons. If there's any angles involved, <laughs> We've we've talked about uh, what what is university and where do university come from, but we haven't yet gotten to the really juicy part, which is the students. So let's talk about them. So who were the students? Who was going to university in the Middle Ages? Anyone could go. You could go to university if you could pay. So arguably a less sort of exclusive structure than we have now, where they can look at your transcripts and say no, thank you. There was no high school in the Middle Ages, so you would just go and uh, enroll, and you'd pay your tuition fees, and then you'd be in. So, of course, in practice, it wasn't that absolutely anyone who wanted to could go to university, so you'd probably best be literate before you go, and um, more specifically be Latinate, so speak and read Latin, because everything's going to be in Latin. But apart from that, anyone could join. So there were quite a few wealthy people, aristocrats, over time that started going to university. And you could actually get quite a lot of like special privileges at medieval university by being an aristocrat. Basically, you know, sort of ceremonial privileges and connections to the higher-ups and stuff like that. Again, completely unlike yeah. modern <laughs> student life. Yep. But you could also be, you could also be pretty poor and go to university. Yeah, and you could also, importantly, be a woman. So there there 
are universities, mostly in Italy, that accept women. So, for example, the University of Salamanca had what they called maids' colleges, where women could study the same subjects as men, just separately. But there were also uh, mixed gender. There was also mixed gender education. So in Bologna, for example, women not only studied law, there were women who lectured in law. Not many of them, but they were there. <laughs> wow. Shouts out. Big up the medieval uh, medieval Bolognese <laughs> women lecturers. More medieval Bolognese lecturers. <laughs> <laughs> only if they're women. Um, and yeah, women were sort of more the exception than the rule, but they were there. And mm -hmm. so were poor students, actually. So there's lots of examples of students working and, say, you know, scrounging and sort of just barely getting by in order to pay their tuition fees. But another thing that developed over the course of the Middle Ages was financial aid. So you could actually, what? often if you wanted to go to universities, get financial aid. Hell yeah. So this is how um, the institution of the college came about, actually. Oh. Don't shit. know if you were aware of this. No, I had no idea. So a college um, is basically, you know, just a little sort of substructure of a university or a school um, within a university or even without a university that isn't, you know, a full-fledged degree-giving institution, but is still a school. And so the first colleges, um, arguably, are the Sorbonne um, in Paris and also the colleges at the University of Oxford. Of which there are many. <laughs> too many to count. Yes, too many to count, and we don't know exactly how uh, which one was the first, um, but I think Balliol is one of them, as is University College, um, Oxford. And so basically these were organizations that were founded by people who, for whatever reason, decided they wanted to support students and their studies, and so you just basically buy a house and say, I'm going to, you know, not only buy this house where t that has room for 12 students to stay, but also, um, you know, provide an endowment for 12 students to study. And I'll cover all of their fees annually. Like some kind of inverse landlord. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I'll pay you to live here. <laughs> yeah, basically. And so that was how um, colleges got started. So you could, you know, in certain circumstances as a poor person, basically get your studies um, paid for, which is pretty cool. I'd imagine that you'd have to make a strong first impression. To <laughs> well, yeah, and a lot of um, a lot of <laughs> <laughs> a lot of colleges, you were kind of restricted in like what you as the student could study. So, say you're like a famous theologist or something, then you can say, okay, I'm going to pay for twelve people to study theology, but only if they study theology. You know, not interested if they don't want to study theology. So. You might say, I'll, I'll sponsor him because he rescued me from my chains when I was a prisoner. <laughs> and I've since then gone on beca to become a man of means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so Balliol College in Oxford, as, this, as the story goes, um, which I quite enjoyed, was um, that the, the guy who started it was called John Balliol. And apparently... Wait, no, not the king. Um, not the dickhead king. I don't Surely. think he was. No, he wasn't no. the dickhead king. Okay, it was just a common last name. Oh, this John is John Bailey. John de Balliol. <laughs> <laughs> is his name actually? <laughs> de Balliol. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Basically, the founder of Balliol College, John de Balliol, abducted um, the Bishop of Durham as part of a land dispute, and as penance, he was given two things uh, to do as penance. One, he was publicly beaten, and two, he had to found Balliol College in Oxford as an act of charity. <laughs> that was actually how I got my degree. <laughs> <laughs> Cool time to just have abducted bishop. <laughs> God, I wish. <laughs> Do you think he thought he was gonna get away with it? <laughs> did he have a plan? <laughs> or did he have the bishop tied up on the back of his horse? Yeah, like, oh. exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like the start of a Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> Freeze frames. You may be asking how I got myself into this situation. Oh. I was thinking more start of Ratatouille. <laughs> no, I was talking about the, you know, it's like, you yeah. know, like the Bob O'Reilly. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Out here in the fields. I fight for my meals. I'm I recently kidnapped the Bishop <laughs> of Durham. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. So colleges are still with us today, but one form of organization uh, that sprung up in universities uh, that's not with us today anymore, sadly. They actually stuck around quite a long time in Scottish universities. Our nations. Thank God we don't have those anymore. <laughs> um, so, in, the medieval, in a medieval university, a nation was basically... It was an organization comprised of all the people at the university who were from your part of the world. And I say your part of the world because it wasn't based on your country a lot of the time. Forget about what you know about the modern nation-state. Yeah. It's the medieval period. Well, you don't have to be French. You can be Occitanian. <laughs> Those like are two different things. <laughs> You'd hate to be there for the fights when they're like, oh, you, you know, they, they put the Catalonians in the same nation as the Spaniards, you know. And it just all goes to shit. Everyone settled for that. Even if you put the Catalonians in the same nation as the Valencians. <laughs> uh, Yikes. Yeah. So you had, um, in the University of Paris, there are four nations. There's the French nation, which is comprised of Italians, French people, Spanish, and Portuguese. You have the Norman nation, which is people from Normandy. You have... <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, quarantine yeah. them. <laughs> you have the Picard nation. Not Star Trek. Don't make the joke. People from Picardy. Um, which is... Northern France, Belgium, a little bit of the Netherlands. And then you have the English nation, which is everybody else. <laughs> Fun fact about that, during, the, uh, during the, the Hundred Years' War, they renamed the English nation to the, the German nation. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real freedom fries situation. Yeah. <laughs> which, to be fair, like most of the people in the quote-unquote English nation in, uh, in, in the Sorbonne were uh, German or Scottish. There were very few English people who were studying there. I believe it had to do with why Oxford was founded that sometime, I think, during the Hundred Years' War, the king just banned English people from going to French universities. <laughs> <laughs> and that law is still in force, to say. <laughs> it's definitely nothing to do with the fact that our language education in the UK is piss poor. <laughs> but yeah, it makes sense, right? Because as, you know, you can speak, presumably all speak Latin, um, and you can communicate with each other and your professors in Latin in, you know, during classes. But Latin's your second language, if that, and is a bit hard 
to to speak and it's not really intended for like everyday conversation by the time we get to the middle ages so it makes sense that you'd want to shack up with all the people from your general part of the world yeah i mean it wasn't it's it's important to sort of note when we say that people were speaking latin that doesn't mean that latin was really a sort of a, a colloquial language it's not like you know the the, compa- the obvious comparison to make is like modern hebrew which is a living language that was sort of resuscitated from you know from liturgical use. This is still a very stuffy academic language at most. But you do get, and this I think is amazing, tensions between people from different countries. And there are wonderful stereotypes that are going around (laughs) about uh, about what all the different students from all the different nations are like. I'd like to read a quote from Jacques de Vritri, um, who wrote about the different stereotypes about uh, students from different parts of the world. He says... They affirm that the English were all drunkards and add tales. The sons of France, proud, effeminate, and carefully adorned, like women. <laughs> they said that the Germans were furious and obscene at their feasts. The Normans, vain and boastful. The Potevans, traitors and always adventurers. The Burgundians, they considered vulgar and stupid. The Bretons were reputed to be fickle and changeable, and were often reproached for the deaths of Arthur. <laughs> the Lombards were called avaricious, vicious, and cowardly. The Romans, seditious, turbulent, and slanderous. The Sicilians, tyrannical and cruel. <laughs> we're almost done. The inhabitants of Brabant, men of blood, incendiaries, brigands, and ravishers. The Flemish, Fickle, prodigal, gluttonous, yielding as butter and slothful. After such insults from words, they often came to blows. Now, is there anything from that that any of you disagree with? I think, where's the lie? I'm always (laughs) saying this. (laughs) English people are drunkards who have tails. Whenever I meet someone from Brabant, I'm like, I have so many stereotypes about you. You, you yield like butter. Yeah. <laughs> An absolute melt. <laughs> as we know, or at least as the three of us know, having been ourselves students in the recent past. May God forgive us. <laughs> I hate to break it to you, but it wasn't that recent. (laughs) It's increasing, certainly for me and Joe, it's increasingly less recent. As I was saying, um, it's, you know, it's all well and fine to go to your lectures and study and get an education, but we all know that's not really what university is about. That's all right if you want to be a nerd. (laughs) If you want Joe Mason to come and shove you in a locker. (laughs) I will do it. (laughs) Yeah, so what is university actually about? It's about getting into trouble. Getting pissed. Right. Drinking strongbow dart fruits, then falling into a hedge, and then you, because you fell into that hedge, it broke a bunch of branches, and then two years later you walk by that hedge and there's a U-shaped hole <laughs> in the hedge. <laughs> Dramatization may not have happened. Sticking it to the dean. Getting <laughs> covered in anti-line paints. <laughs> Stealing a trolley. Trolley. Bleh. Stealing a cone. <laughs> you would Stealing steal. a sign. <laughs> Stealing a cone and putting it in your bathroom for a year. Being hated by most other people in the city you live in. Being loud. 
So that may have been a, a, a list of some crimes that we may or may not have committed over the years. Comedy. Comedy. I stole a flower pot once. I forgot about that. Oh, that's like felony. Yeah, it's yeah. true. They you shoot shouldn't you for that. say that yeah. on the show. You talk to British people about their gardens. If you said you like molested a garden, I think they should be shot. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> you would want to be going for the cannon court there because the, the temple ones. These, not da- be nice. these days, if you steal a flower pot, you get arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> so there were lots of different activities that you could do in your free time because let's be honest, you're reading all day. You want to get out there and, and do some stuff. Hit the town. Yeah. And it's really hard to tell what people were doing for fun because they didn't write it down. You can usually only tell what people, what ordinary people were doing at any given time based on what was prohibited or regulated. And people weren't keen on self-incrimination because they hadn't invented podcasts. Well, there was was an attempt at self-incrimination because lots of universities had rules that say, if you see somebody stealing a flower pot, you need to narc them out immediately. (laughs) I think it's an important bit of context before we go any further that, as I've said before, like secondary, primary and secondary education were not like a thing, especially not as an institutionalized thing, which meant that there wasn't a designated age when you were old enough to go to university. So people were getting sent off to uni or choosing to go at like age 13, 14, 15. A lot of the people, like if you think you've been young and dumb, these people were, you know, much, much younger than the average university student, but were basically given all of the same freedoms. And it privileges. was essentially you just took a bunch of wee bams. Yeah. And let them loose on the poor people of Cambridge. So they were getting up to all sorts. One of the most popular activities was gambling. Now the university tried the universities tried to restrict this usually by restricting the amount of money you could gamble to the price of a pint of wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but people were do- still doing it constantly because what else you got to do? Yeah. You know, another popular activity was fencing. Um, so there's a brilliant, brilliant quote. Uh, that I love about fencing in medieval Spanish universities, which is, uh, a blade could be purchased for a few pence, and in virtually every student's room in Spain, one could find a leather jacket, buckler, crossbelt, and foil. So everybody in Spain was rocking the Puss in Boots fit. (laughs) Imagine how great my life would have been. Imagine what my life would have been like if I could have been just fighting people with swords. You could have been been killed immediately in a duel. Or, alternatively, I could have been never touched by a blade. You gotta be a little touch. Cool scars are important. And yeah. if these activities have in- interested you today, you can visit our sponsor, Bet Fred. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are not sponsored by anyone. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna play a, a, a game with you guys, which is I want you to guess out of a multi choice list which of these sports could get you expelled from the University of Cayenne in France. Ready to play? Mm-hmm. Feeling good. Okay, so, were that A, fencing, B, golf, C, hawking, or D, tennis? Right, let's have a little discussion here. Not... I thought, no, you're competing. Well, no. We've, <laughs> we've, we've turned the tables. You've yeah. unionized. We're doing a student union situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is our podcasters' union. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Hear any of the okay, I'm going to close my eyes there. and put my fingers in my ears. I think it might be golf because they understood the deleterious effects it had on the environment. Yeah, the water consumption alone. Exactly. It's so wasteful. Especially when all your water, you have to bring it up from a well by hand. Oh, God. Or have a donkey do it. <laughs> 
Hey, don't say that about Aaron just because he can't hear us. <laughs> okay, are you finished? Okay. Yes, we yeah. are. We've chosen... I had a blissfully I had a blissfully quiet time in there. We've chosen golf. Uh eh, wrong, tennis. Shit. <laughs> I was gonna say tennis after golf. Because you can just you're hitting the ball really fast, you know? Yeah, and you have to wear those tights. Oh. It's all very like so ridiculous. Itchy. Yeah. So wait, why was tennis the one that was not allowed? Too raucous. Wow. Too rambunctious. Too modern, even. Yes. It was a very modern invention. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I was reading about academic fencing, which is, I think, has its roots in Spain um, around this time, sort of the late medieval, early modern period. And basically is how they just decided to institutionalize fencing as like a thing that university students do. That like, you know, it was good to just sort of take up arms and like get out some of your frustrations and your angers and like have an institutionalized way to solve interpersonal conflict. Yeah, because it was in theory non-lethal. Yeah. Than but in practice <laughs> was quite often yeah. lethal. Yeah. How much fairer is it if you meet up in a square and try to stab each other as opposed to breaking yeah. into their room and like throwing them out a window? Yeah. Her or... at the her at Word Medieval University <laughs> who can participate in lots of different sports. Golf. Tennis. Not tennis. Not non-lethal fencing. <laughs> lethal fencing. <laughs> I'm so glad you all understand the internal structure of a Brian Butterfield joke <laughs> as well as I do. The banning of tennis, it's sort of those three other sports. They're an expression <laughs> of nobility, aren't they? Yeah. You're, you're a noble of the sword. Mm -hmm. You want to own large tracts of lands. Yeah. You can ex display how much land you have that you waste it by playing golf on it. <laughs> and hawks are just like fancy. They're yeah. the nobility. They're on the crest of like half the kingdoms. Whereas tennis, you're just knocking a bloody ball about. What the hell are you doing? Totally lame. It's yeah. stupid. But the number one activity yes. uh, that students participated in back in the in the day was one that is still the number one activity that students participate in now studying Murder. <laughs> drinking oh. <laughs> let's backtrack a bit to drinking um so yeah i mean it's um the the oldest one of the oldest hobbies i would say and we the reason why we know that students drank a lot is because when they drank, it was often followed by problems. Well, yeah, because you have all these like teenagers, basically, who've been bigged up and told they're hot shit, and then that the law doesn't apply. <laughs> so they cause no end of issues for the townsfolk. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think it's worth mentioning, um, before we get into some of the specifics of issues that were caused, um, that, like, you could get thrown out of university. It wasn't like you could just commit crimes forever and never suffer any consequences. <laughs> um, <Tragically. laughs> but it was, you know, medieval society. <laughs> but it was still like, you know, it was an extra layer of protection. And, mm. um, of course the university was likely to be pretty favorable to its students as opposed to the townsfolk and as someone who's just shipped in for a short period to study mm -hmm. you're less invested in the local town <laughs> you burn down half the village yeah so it goes exactly yeah. well there was a great example in paris in 1200 a german student by the name of henry de jacquia essentially accosted an innkeeper for overcharging him and trashed the tavern innkeeper goes to the local provost says these students are fucking up my business. Local provost leads a 
lynch mob essentially to the student halls <laughs> you know there's a big ruckus uh, a couple people get uh killed eventually the uh the university senate essentially says how dare you go and mess with our students and violate <laughs> the sacred privileges of the university S- somewhat reasonably seeing as some people had died <laughs> perhaps <laughs> it was just a standard night at murano essentially um and they and they demand of the king that the you know the, the rioters are punished and the uh the uh, they apologize to the university and then not only does the king go along with that but he passes a charter that says that uh laymen are actually obliged to to uh report any crimes against students and local uh lay people are not allowed to attack students at all so you have they are required to narc out anybody who like goes against these roving bands of pissed teenagers. <laughs> so I would like to clarify, was that an event in 1209, you said? 1200. 1200, exactly, that's the date. That's the date. Because, interestingly then, after this promulgation, 20 years later, you had a similar issue with uh, students in Paris who accosted another innkeep. <laughs> they were thrown out of the inn. They, he went, goes back to the halls, gathers up all his mates, says, right, we're going to make a fucking mess of that place. <laughs> they all go back. They trash the inn. The innkeeper, and this is where he fucked up, instead of going to the ecclesiastical authorities, went to the local guards, who apparently came down surprisingly heavy-handed, <laughs> went to arrest some of the students and killed a bunch of them. <laughs> Which, in response, the university went on strike. <laughs> Somewhat justifiably, again, because people had died. Yeah. <laughs> and I think they refused to teach for a couple of years, and it was only settled by... Oh, oh my God, I need to get more information on this. It was only <laughs> settled by a papal bull. Because <laughs> part of the issue was, was the King of France was in his infancy, and the regent had an issue with the University of Paris. Uh. So it sort of became a, a sense of, like... Um, it was like a sort of... A little bit of a power struggle ongoing between, like, these... Um, you know, competing power structures, you have the mm-hmm. nobility, yeah. you have the mayor of Paris, and then you have the university that supposedly has its own independence, but still has to interact with all these different institutions. And he saw that as an opportunity to come down hard on the university. Right. But then the strike paid off in the end, and the Pope intervened and said, well, actually, you need to give these guys... <laughs> you can't just kill some students. <laughs> I don't care how trashed your pub was. You can't get, like, Baz and Gaz from the town guard. Who <laughs> are the largest men you ever seen. <laughs> to, to go and chop them in half. Baz, <laughs> Gaz, fuck, Ringo. <laughs> so it was basically a time loop, yeah. essentially, of students... Trash pub. <laughs> Local guard kills students. Students campaign. <laughs> Student murder banned. <laughs> Outrageous. And the students trash pub. These days, if you murder a student, you get arrested and thrown in jail. <laughs> well, yeah, I think the most probably famous case of this is um, what led to the University of Cambridge being founded. I believe in this case, it was some students who went into a pub and uh, they didn't immediately start swinging, but they, upon tasting the wine, decided it wasn't up to snuff. <laughs> Wait a minute, are you sure these are all different stories? <laughs> these are... 
and started lambasting the innkeeper for serving shit wine. I'm starting I, to sense a trend. And I forget exactly, um, I forget the specifics, but essentially, once again, it ended with students um, being lynched. And I think, again, when you remember that, like, these are, like, basically a lot of them are 14, 15, 16. It makes a lot more sense why they're starting fights and also losing them Rowdy, so frequently. <laughs> Rowdy teens all the cities of Europe. Yeah, the I don't know if, like... is haunting Europe. The specter of teenagers. <laughs> Rowdy teens with ecclesiastical protection. Local youths. <laughs> well, just imagine you're an innkeeper, right? And a 14-year-old in a gown who's doing a degree in theology, walks into your inn and is like, you know, bring us some wine. He tastes the wine. And he's like, this wine's fucking shit. You would just, I mean, when I see a 14-year-old on the street, like, I already want to start smacking them around because they're such insufferable little creatures. And, like, imagine it being beholden to them and they can't get arrested <laughs> or punished in any way. Well, many scholars argue that that actually led to the creation of the provisional driver's license. <laughs> As a means of preventing children from coming into drinking establishments. <laughs> What's but, your birthday? <laughs> what year? Every year. <laughs> but essentially, um, the, 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 sorry, the conclusion of the story is a bunch of um, students and lecturers who probably at Oxford who had probably witnessed quite a bit of this and decided that the vibes were slowly starting to sour said let's move to cambridge and start a new university hell yeah well there were lots of crimes in oxford committed by students uh, to the point that they essentially had to flee to cambridge <laughs> and start another new university and do the exact same thing <laughs> i imagine that the news hadn't travelled to Cambridge yet. <laughs> they should be terrified. Well, a bunch of local youths are going to come in and support our local economy. Yeah. The kebab shops are going to be Ye old kebab shops. Yeah. My inn. <laughs> the one Turkish man in medieval Cambridge. I'll finally be able to sell this bad wine I have. They won't know the difference. <laughs> What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> To give a sense for the sorts of um, shenanigans that students were getting up to, we're going to take a quick look at the medieval Oxford murder map, which, if you're not familiar with this uh, wonderful website, it's essentially a map of medieval murders um, that took place, and you can just click through and see all of the lovely places where people were stabbed in cities like Oxford and London in the Middle Ages. And so if you look at the Oxford map, as I think you have, Joe, um, you'd notice pretty quickly that a lot of these involve students, <laughs> like up to half. It's a real problem. <laughs> it definitely seems to be. So um, local robed youths yeah. running around stabbing people. Essentially, I mean, you have to wonder whether robes were perceived as like the tracksuits of the medieval era or something. <laughs> Some scary youths are sort of walking down the street drinking wine <laughs> and wearing a gown. Yep. They're exactly. Listening to, they're listening to fiddle music out of a tinny speaker <laughs> so yeah here's one that's um titled william suffers for 17 days after being stabbed by two scholars um so here's a guy named william de bufford who was a baker and um yeah essentially just tells us that he was um he was uh, standing in the door of his house immediately after curfew 
and uh, just two scholars just rocked up and stabbed him. So there was probably a bit of a backstory there, some kind of, uh, you know, interpersonal conflicts. A lot of these we don't know exactly why the murder took place. We have to sort of read between the lines. So here's um, another one that's the murder of actually a student by two other students. And so the backstory or what we know about this murder basically is that one of the students went to the house of Christina, a widow, and a milf. brought her out of the house and they were walking and uh, through walking through Oxford and for some reason two other students showed up started a fight and uh, killed him that's so. my milk <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> some kind of milk custody battle <laughs> well the individual examples might not necessarily provide the backstory to explain what is going on the sheer quantity of murders <laughs> committed by students does sort of attest to an issue yep Yep. Oh, and um, I really enjoyed that one of the... Uh, I think the names in these are always really good. Um, so I really enjoyed Balwin de Stonor. <laughs> <laughs> More like Baldwin the Stoner. To quote, they say also that Baldwin de Stonor, clerk, was there with a drawn sword and his with and with his buckler. So this dude came with a sword and a shield. <laughs> <laughs> so he must have had some real issues. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, if there's like constant murders happening in like around students, I'd carry a shield with me. And immediately, and was consenting to the deed. And immediately thereafter, they all fled. <laughs> Baldwin, who was arrested. <laughs> so yeah, Baldwin was um was arrested. But often as well, what we see with these um murders is that they end in finding out that the perpetrator, um, if the perpetrator was a student or a scholar. Um, oftentimes they just kind of skip town. So I think it suggests that, yeah, these people couldn't be immediately arrested, but you didn't necessarily want to be seen, like, strolling through the streets of Oxford in broad daylight after stabbing someone else's milf. You'd probably <laughs> attract trouble to yourself. Somebody stabbed my milf. Yeah. I'd never forgive them. Over <laughs> some kind of unclear dispute. I think it's pretty clear what the dispute was. I think I have a very clear dispute. If I was a simple baker standing in my doorway after curfew, these two teens approached. You gotta start bricking it. You gotta be like, what am I gonna do? No, exactly. So, the key means of communication that students have, because obviously a lot of them weren't making enough money to sustain themselves, so it's very important for them to keep in contact with their families. And fortunately for us, some of those letters have been preserved. Yes, 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 yes. So there's a, there's a historian called C.H. Haskins uh, who did a study of the content of medieval, uh, medieval student letters, sort of, I think, in the hope that it would shed some light about their sort of emotional states or whatever. And he ends up concluding literally all they were writing back to their parents was, please send more money. <laughs> There's a great quote that he is like with one Italian parent who's like writing, a student's first song is a demand for money, and there will never be a letter which does not ask for cash. A very relatable experience. Well, I I, I would agree. Um, I have a I have a, a let a, an excerpt from a letter, Joe, that I'd like you to read actually as it happens. Well, go on. This is to inform you that I am studying at Oxford with the greatest diligence. But the matter of money stands greatly in the way of my promotion, as it is now two months since I spent the last of what you sent me. 
The city is expensive <laughs> and makes many demands. I have rent lodgings, buy necessaries, and provide for many other things which I cannot now specify. <laughs> Wink. Wherefore, I respectfully beg your paternity that by the promptings of divine pity, laying it on a little thick, you may assist me so that I may be able to complete what I have well begun. For you must know that without Ceres and Bacchus, Apollo grows cold. Largely indistinguishable from my family group chat. I'm surprised he wrote that bit on the end. That was my comment. It was all highlighted. I just... <laughs> no, um, you can see there though that he's he is trying to flex both the oh I'm such a poor student please mm-hmm. feel sorry for me, whereas also demonstrating his classical knowledge. Yeah. Without it's... bread and beer, the life of knowledge grows cold. Well, you should you say that, but also sometimes they would try this on, basically, <laughs> and the parent would be having none of it. So I have an equally great letter in response to one of these letters that I'd like to, Olivia to read. All right. <laughs> to his son G, residing at Orleans P of Besangon, sends greeting with paternal zeal. It is written, he also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. <laughs> I have recently discovered that you live dissolutely and slothfully, preferring license to restraint and play to work, and strumming a guitar while the others are at their studies, whence it happens that you have read but one volume of law, while your more industrious companions have read several. Wherefore, I have decided to exhort you herewith to repent utterly of your dissolute and careless ways, that you may no longer be called a waster, and your shame may be turned to good repute. So there you go, folks. Uh, the classic archetype of the sort of bohemian student who sits strumming a guitar and never does any work. He's always been with us. So there you go. I, th- I think we I think we can conclude that the, the preoccupations of uh, of students in the Middle Ages are more or less the same, with one notable murder based exception, are uh, are more or less the same than they are now. So you know, boozing, and and <laughs> and trying to sleep with older women, <laughs> arguing with the guy who sells you bread, <laughs> and writing to your parents saying, please wire me more cash, <laughs> while simultaneously playing the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Medieval students, they're just like us. I think when we started this episode, we had a lot of questions. What is a university? Where is a university? Who is a student? And you know what? I think we've answered none of them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we do here on the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. Raise more questions than answer. <laughs> answer questions with questions. The but medieval yeah. world was a mysterious place. We don't know anything about that ab- mysterious. <laughs> we don't know anything about the medieval world, which is why we have to make a podcast to make things up about it. Yeah. It's lost to time, sadly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Very few written records, just a lot of archaeological interpretation. <laughs> most of this is based... Why are there so many empty wine bottles? <laughs> I was going to say, most of this building. has been based off my experience of digging around Cambridge and it just all being wine bottles. <laughs> <laughs> and knives. <laughs> uh. 
So if you're thinking about uh, getting into archaeology, folks, it's a, it's a glamorous profession. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's it kind of goes to show you that, like, the period, the, the type of person who is able to become a student is someone who's, you know, probably doesn't have obligations, probably not settled down, probably no spouse or kids, um, and probably someone of means. So it's always kind of been a lifestyle that, even though it's been open to a lot of people, it's always kind of been a lifestyle that is particularly suited to the young and at least reasonably well-off. The dilettante idiot children of the professional <laughs> class. <laughs> A.K.A. us. The, the word lifestyle is pr- pretty accurate here. Yeah. Less of a pursuit of learning, more of a <laughs> pissing around. Getting your puss in boots on. <laughs> yep. Well, yeah, I mean, that's how, like, student halls and student accommodations began as well, is, like, we need to keep these guys on a bit of a shorter leap. <laughs> and created wonderful, wonderful uh, environments, like Murano Street Student Village, which yeah. raised all of us. Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, you know, these people are behaving irresponsibly, let's put them all together in one place. In one place. Yeah. <laughs> <And> um, <laughs> somehow created universities across Europe as they migrated from town to town, fleeing their crimes. <laughs> Like a sort of yeah. evil circus. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that bombshell, I think that's just about going to do us for this episode of the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. It went off the rails there a couple of times, but hopefully in a good way. Um, thank you so much, Joe Mason, beloved local archaeologist and uh, unofficial archaeological consultant. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's been been a delight to have you. Um, So, yeah, before we go, just a reminder that uh, the Weird Medieval Guys book by Olivia Swarthout of this very parish is available in all good bookshops, even ones in Hastings. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. They sell it in Hastings. I was just in Hastings. Saw the book. I have been enjoying my own copy that that, that you gave me as a housewarming gift, which was very, (laughs) very, very sweet of you. Um, I mean, it's full of, like, fun and interactivity and, and beautiful crisp image. I mean, the printing on it is incredible. Like, it's... it's they did it's, a good job on the printing. It's such a good, like, a wonderful little artifact. And, you know, you should buy this book. It's really good. <laughs> I haven't read it yet, but as soon as I attain, attain the literacy... Wonderful. Well, yeah. Thanks again for listening, and thanks to Joe for joining us, hopefully not for the last time. Um, And as ever, thanks um, to everyone for reviewing the podcast on your platform of choice, and feel free, if you love us and you want to show your support and affection for us, to leave us a five-star review, leave us a silly comment, and maybe we'll read it out on the podcast like we're about to do. I'll pick one. Take it away. Uh, we've got this one from Aiden who says, I love your podcast. It makes me laugh with delight, even on stressful days. Would you consider making an episode on Chaucer? Silly, we did an episode on Chaucer. <laughs> but I think there's, I, we, we did an episode about the wife of Bath uh, as part of our wife guys episode. But I think Chaucer, Chaucer we will definitely return there's to. There's more to say. There's a lot more to say about Big Jeff. We'll have a big... We'll walk to Canterbury. <gasps> yes! That would be fun, wouldn't it? It's not that far. Yeah, we could have a storytelling contest. <gasps> Ooh. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> 
All right, that's that's just about going to do us. Olivia, where can people find you? You can find me um, on Twitter. Find the Weird Medieval Guys account at Weird Medieval or my own personal account at Olivia underscore underscore MS. I am at Aaron P. Tappers on Twitter. I'm at, I'm just at Aaron on Blue Sky because early adopter, baby. And Joe, where can people find you? In a field in England. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I'm off to go and grab a grab a pint of wine and do some fencing. How about you? Yeah, I'm going to go um, play tennis and get arrested. These I'm days. Thrown in jail. <laughs> to find a baker. I've had some disputes with <laughs> Sorry, wait. Is that my milf outside? <laughs> that bastard. <laughs> get the butt <laughs> classic example of the medieval students the mystery gang they kind of are aren't they yeah. except except they in the middle ages they'd be the ones doing the crimes <sighs> yeah that's true but they sort of scooby let's push this man down a well <laughs> i mean that's what they do in scooby-doo they're beholden oh, yeah. to canon law and they're all <laughs> and they can do it because it's just an old man yeah all those dudes they arrested they take to the christian courts <laughs> <laughs> Why is it always old men, whatever the fuck? Because oh, that's who do that. That who who do you think does all the crime in society? Old men. Yeah, that's we're, true. We're getting woke here. We're speaking about the real issues. Yeah.